Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. In Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up on that glorious day when the Lord fulfilled his promise to send to them the spirit of truth who would be with them forever. Not just that he would be with them, but he would be in them. And not only that he would be with them, but he would guide them and lead them and teach them and remind them of all things Messiah had taught them that we, in turn, can learn from our Savior through His Word. So if you look at Acts chapter 2, as the Spirit of God has come upon these believers, as I said last week, I believe the miraculous expression of their speaking the variety of languages that are explained here and that are revealed to us, and that those that had those flames of fire that were resting upon them, whatever that means, we oftentimes think it means resting on their heads, and maybe it does. But it simply says resting upon them. And those little flames of fire, they came out of a massive flame of fire, we're told in verse uh, 2 or 3 or so, that they were, um, it says... They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated. Separated from what? And came to rest on each one of them. So perhaps there was this manifestation of the fire and glory, the Shekinah glory. And then it sort of broke up into smaller parts. So that flames of fire were resting on the disciples. And it says that they were like tongues of fire. They were shaped It would appear like tongues because what is going to go on is the verbalization of the will and word of God, the explanation of what God is now doing. I mentioned last week that Luke tells us that when the day of Shavuot came, and that word came means when it came to full completion, when it was fully completed or fully fulfilled, In other words, what Luke is telling us is that Shavuot had a particular fulfillment to experience with regard to the coming of Messiah. And just like Messiah was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, now Luke is telling us what's happening here on Shavuot is a fulfilling of what Shavuot was meant to tell us about. And what was Shavuot meant to tell us about? It was meant to tell us of the imparting of the Spirit of God. And the imparting of the Spirit of God on this level would occur when Messiah came. So this moment is evidence that Yeshua is Messiah. He's already appeared. 
And just like at Passover, Yeshua raises the cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the remission of sins. Messiah has come to bring redemption. And Passover tells us of that. Messiah came not only to die, but to rise again. And the Feast of First Fruits was to tell us of that. And 49, 50 days later, Shavuot was to tell us of the gift of the Spirit, that the Spirit, that the Messiah of Israel would impart to his people. This is what it says in Jeremiah 31, that God would make a new covenant with his people. Yeshua told us the new covenant started when he raised the cup and said, this is the new covenant of my blood poured out for the remission of sins. Now that the new covenant has been initiated, has been ratified, Jeremiah 31 says, this covenant will be different than the covenant God made with Israel in the wilderness, the Mosaic law. Here, something different is going to happen. The law of God will be written on our hearts. Not merely an external uh, explanation of the law or declaration of the law written on tablets of stone, but now it would be engraved, not on stone, but on our hearts. And it would be engraved by the work of the Spirit of God. And that's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. The fruition of what Shavuot is about, Luke tells us, is now about to unfold. And the Shekinah glory manifests itself because Messiah is showing up by means of his spirit. And as the Shekinah glory shows up, then it begins to separate, it says. And then these flames of fire rest on each one, I believe, the 12 disciples, not the whole 120 the reason I believe it's only on the, the 12 is because that's the focus of the passage. The end of chapter 1 tells us that there was a uh, Mattathias would now become the disciple who would replace Judas because he was the betrayer. The focus is on the 12. And then when everyone heard them, it said that they said, how are they speaking these languages? They're all Galileans. The all Galileans restricts what was happening to those from Galilee. And who were the Galileans? They were the disciples where Messiah had gotten his followers initially from. So here on Shavuot, the twelve are manifesting this miraculous occurrence of the Spirit of God working in their midst. The people around them are saying, these men must be drunk. What is going on here? Peter stands up and he says, no, these men are not drunk because it's too early. I think it's something of a humorous statement that he's making. Could be wrong, but that's how I take it. In other words, you might be right if it was a different time of day. But it's not the right time of day when we would expect people to sort of get inebriated. It's only nine in the morning. Not that they did such things, but only that it sounds to me like Peter's saying, look... It's too early for this to have happened. So what is going on? Let me tell you what's happening. And what happens throughout the book of Acts is whenever individuals are filled with the Spirit, which is what's happening here, which means to be controlled by the Spirit, they verbalize and live out the truth of God's Word. That's what's happening here, and that's what happens throughout the book of Acts. They're filled with the Spirit, and then they boldly proclaim the word of God fearlessly. That's what Peter is doing here. And that's what all the disciples who become filled with the Spirit do throughout the book of Acts. 
But Peter's message is significant. I'd like to share some of the high points of it. First of all, what makes Peter's message significant, I think, is that this is an incredibly fearless message. Think about this. Messiah had just been crucified. All of Jerusalem was gathered in the streets of Jerusalem saying, crucify him, crucify him. All of them were rejecting him as Messiah. The disciples themselves in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they were hunkered down and praying and then fell asleep, and then when they were being arrested, they all ran and they fled from the presence of Messiah. When he was taken into custody, only one, John, sort of lingers behind and sort of follows his way into the temple precincts to observe what is going on. Peter also finds his way in there. But when a woman says, hey, aren't you a Galilean? Aren't you one who is with Messiah? Three times, Peter says, you've got the wrong guy. I am not him. And then lastly, Messiah himself is led out in the midst of that company. Peter is right there looking him in the eye. And he is asked, are you not one of his disciples? And then what it says, which is really remarkable, it says, Peter said no, and he said no with all kinds of cursings and foul language. Well, he was a fisherman. And it says with cursings, he denied it. And then he ran out and was depressed and in sorrow because of his denial of the Lord three times. And now, just 40-something, 50-something days later, after that moment, here is Peter standing up amongst the throngs in Jerusalem. Remember, Shavuot was one of three pilgrimage festivals. Most of the time, the Jewish people that would gather to Jerusalem on Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, they would come on Pesach and they would stay for those 50 days and celebrate and observe Shavuot as well. After all, we're here already. We just have to wait another 40 or 50 days, another month, and we can celebrate Shavuot. The crowds would have grown to hundreds of thousands of people. Peter and those with him are not in the upper room when this happens. They are in the temple, probably Solomon's porch, the area of the court of the Gentiles where Yeshua often taught. We know that the early believers worshipped in the temple. They worshipped with their people Israel on a national basis. They worship with them as individuals who came to honor the Lord. They came as a body of believers in Messiah, honoring the King of all kings. And here, in the midst of their time of worship, the Spirit of God descends. A mighty rushing wind is experienced. And God's Spirit shows up. And Peter fearlessly stands up. I'm always impressed in the book of Acts when the believers are uh, imprisoned and they're taken hold of. Many times they're physically mistreated. Their prayer is not to be relieved, not to be released or relieved. But their prayer is that the Lord would give them more boldness, boldness to proclaim the good news and the truth. You see this with Paul and we find the jailers come to faith. 
We see this throughout various episodes in the book of Acts. The first thing that strikes me about his message is how fearlessly he delivers it. While frightened in the past, now he's extremely proud of who Messiah is and who he is in relation to him. And so he stands up with courage and says, let me tell you what this is about. The second thing that strikes me about this passage is how biblically centered it is. Look what he does. He quotes from three major passages. He doesn't have a Bible in front of him. At least, we don't, I don't think so. They didn't have Bibles. They had scrolls. And he's quoting from Scripture. He must have been quoting this from memory. And he must have been quoting it from memory because he had been studying it and applying himself to know the Word. When was he doing this? Well, when the 120 were in the upper room, I'm sure they did not have for their, those days that they were there, their eyes closed, their hands folded, and they were just praying and praying. They had the scrolls open. And as they prayed and talked to God, Lord, the Lord spoke to them through his word. And so as they're praying, they're reading, they're studying, they're reflecting, they're remembering. Remember, the spirit of God would lead them into all truth and remind them of the things Yeshua had taught them. You can imagine the two on the road to Emmaus relating what Messiah had taught them when they were on the road to Emmaus and beginning in the law and the prophets and the writings began to show how all the scriptures spoke of him. And those two on the road to Emmaus, perhaps they were leading the Bible study in the upper room and saying, man, we've got stuff to show you guys. And no doubt they had the word of God open. And now with proper study and prayer and the presence of God's spirit, Peter has something to say. And the spirit of God is bringing it to his mind. Often in our day and age, when we think of individuals that teach the word of God, they usually have a three-point message, a four-point message, if it's a little lengthier. You know, the Puritans, they had like 12, 13-point messages. They used to speak for two to three to four hours. I mean, you really had to know how to listen, you know, and sit. You had to know how to sit. But Peter's message is really interesting because he quotes from three passages, big passages. And I was counting the verses. You know, for every verse of Scripture he quotes, he has a verse of explanation. And then at the end, he has a brief application. So he spends most of his time just reading the word and then bringing to their attention what it means. And then very quickly he says, so this is what you need to do. <laughs> you know, it's, it's almost backwards from today, isn't it? Today it's like everyone wants to know, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And just stay with one passage and just briefly tell me what it means, but let me know how I can live my life. Peter's message is just the opposite, which is kind of interesting to me. So take a look at verse 17. Peter stands up. Here's the first passage. He quotes from Joel chapter 2. And he says, in the last days... The Lord says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. This is what you're seeing. Peter is trying to tell those that are observing it. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. And your old men will dream dreams. None of that is happening right now. No one's giving visions. No one's mentioning dreams. The only thing he's talking about is, I'm trying to explain to you what is happening right now. 
And what are they seeing and hearing? They're seeing the 12 speaking languages that they've never learned. They're all shocked in our own language with these crazy Galilean accents. They're telling me about Messiah. He's telling me about, they're telling me about what's going on in Messiah. Peter now wants to explain. This is in accordance with what Joel said would happen in the last days. Now, when he means the last days, he doesn't mean just prior to when Messiah returns. He means the last days when the new covenant would be inaugurated. Because that's what Jeremiah says. In the last days, the Lord will make a new covenant. And Messiah said, this is the new covenant of my blood. He's telling us we have entered into that time when Messiah has fulfilled the law and the prophets. And that fulfilling of the law and the prophets is what is meant by, in many contexts, the last days. Messiah is here. Sometimes it means the very last days to you and I, just before Messiah returns. But at the end of time, God would make a new covenant, and he's already established it. So he's saying what Joel has said has come to fulfillment. He said some other things that we would see. We're not seeing them right now. But my point is the Spirit is outpoured because the new covenant has been initiated. And the new covenant has been initiated because Messiah has come. That's what he wants them to know. He's not concerned with them thinking about the dreams and the visions. That's just the fully quoting of the passage. What he's really concerned about is what you're seeing is the manifestation of the fullness of the Spirit of God. And so he says, I will show you wonders in the heavens, signs on the earth, blood, fire, billows of smoke. That's not happening right now. But one day it will, just like the outpouring of the Spirit is happening now. Because the new covenant has been established. The last days are upon us. The rest of these things, Joel tells us, is going to happen as well. But these first, this first part is what you're experiencing. He tells us, and everyone, and this is the other thing he's looking to get to. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You need to call on his name. He quotes the whole passage to focus on the first part and the last part. First part, what you're seeing is the Holy Spirit's being poured out. Why? Because the new covenant has been established. Why? Because Messiah is here. And therefore, everyone, Jews and Gentiles, that's what the new covenant is about. The new covenant is not just an isolated covenant that affects the Jewish people. It's a covenant with the Jewish people, but it has an impact on the whole world. Not like the Mosaic law, which was made with Israel and does not really have an impact on the whole world. But the new covenant would. And so what he's telling us is, the Spirit of God is outpoured, the new covenant has been inaugurated, and now everyone can call on the name of the Lord. And that's why at Shavuot this is so significant, because all of these Jews and proselytes are coming from all the nations of the world. They're scattered throughout the whole Roman Empire. And as they come to experience salvation, they're going to go back to those parts of the Roman Empire, and they're going to touch the lives of the Gentiles that are present there as well. Certainly the proselytes are Gentiles. They're already being impacted. So Peter's message is, first of all, fearless. You know, others, like Stephen, when he tells the story of the history of the Jewish people leading up to the coming of Messiah, he then says, and God has opened the hearts of the Gentiles. The minute he mentions Gentiles, that's when they start stoning him. Not so with Peter. Peter's saying the same thing, and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's that open door to the non-Jewish world. And Peter is basing all of this on the truth of the word of God. 
Second passage he quotes is given further down in verse 25. He then says, David said about him, the Messiah, I saw, saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. He's quoting from Psalm 68. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope. Peter's point is, this cannot be about David. He says, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. When he says, I saw the Lord always before me, this can't be about David, he's telling us. He's saying, this must be about Messiah. It doesn't just mean that I see him, but that I am united to him. That I am submissive to him. I am obedient to him. He's always before me. I've come to do his will. The will of him who sent me. What must we do to be saved, Yeshua is asked. He said, do the will of my father who is in heaven. When he's in the garden of Gethsemane, he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. Yeshua always had the Lord before him. And thus what he came to do was to do the will of the one who sent him. And so this psalm is not about David, though David wrote it. It's about a son of David who would embody its truth fully. And so he says, I will not be shaken. Whatever the Lord calls me to do, even to the point of giving my life a ransom for many. I will not be shaken from that. I will not be distracted from that. In fact, my heart is glad to do the will of him who sent me. Why? Because he will not abandon me to the grave. But David's grave was known in the first century. Some have, have suggested that we found it today, but I'm not so certain the tourist site of the tomb of David is the right tomb that is mentioned here. But that's for another day. But the point here is, David did go to the tomb. David's body did experience corruption and decay. But here, he says, you will not abandon me and you will not let your Holy One see decay. David is speaking about the Messiah who would be raised from the dead and whose body would not suffer decay over the years or centuries that his body might otherwise be placed there like David. The third passage he makes reference to is Psalm 110. It's found in verse 14. Psalm 110 is the most often quoted Old Testament passage. It is not only quoted, but it's also alluded to. Some scholars say that we can find allusions and quotes of it that would number nearly 30 times in the New Covenant Scriptures. That's rather remarkable. That's how important this passage was. In fact, Yeshua makes reference to it himself when he is challenged by the Jewish leadership when he enters Jerusalem just before, during Passover and just before, just before Passover and just before he gives his life. And after he is inspected to be shown spotless and to be qualified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you remember all the questions that, he was, that were thrown at him. He's asked by the Pharisees, what's the great commandment? To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And they say, yes, you've answered rightly. When the Sadducees who denied the resurrection, they challenge him regarding the resurrection. And Messiah says, number one, you don't know the scriptures. And number two, you don't know the power of God. If you knew both, you would know there is a resurrection of the dead. 
Then the Herodians are going to say, is it right to pay tribute to Caesar? And he will say, whose image is on the coin? Caesar. He says, render the things that are Caesar's and render the things that are God's. He's inspected by the Jewish leadership, whether they are Sadducees, Pharisees, or Herodians. And he's found to answer their questions perfectly, demonstrating that he is spotless and he's without blemish, and he does qualify to be Messiah. And then he turns the tables, and he asks them a question. And he says, when David says, my, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your, the nations... Well, let me read it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He asks the question, who is David's Lord? About whom? is this passage speaking. That's what Peter is doing here as well. Because in the Hebrew text, when it says the Lord, that's the sacred name of God, the unpronounceable name of God. The Lord is saying to Adoni, the word Adonai, Lord, meaning master. It's a lesser term than the sacred name of God. Sometimes it's used to refer to God. Sometimes it's used to refer to others, like Eliezer, when he goes to find a wife for Isaac. He tells Laban, isn't it Laban? I'm getting the names of all these ancestors. But he goes and he tells Rebekah's father. And he says, my Lord has sent me. He uses the word Adoni, but he's talking about Abraham. In the English Bible, when the sacred name of God is used, you have all capital letters. And look at Psalm 110, or look at this passage, you'll see the same thing. All capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It refers to the sacred name of God. But when you have capital O, uh, capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d, now you have the Hebrew word Adonai, not the sacred name of God. Everyone's with me, right? So Psalm 110 says, the Lord, sacred name of God said to my Adoni, my master, my Lord. So who is David's Lord? Because David's a king. He doesn't have any other Lord than God. There's no one that David bows down to. David is speaking and he said, the Lord said to my Lord. So Yeshua says, who is David's Lord that he could be referring to? Because David doesn't have a Lord. To refer to other than God. And both Yeshua and Peter say, it must be Messiah. The Lord was not talking to David. He was talking to Messiah. The Lord said to my Lord. David is sort of observing this conversation as it were. God is saying to Messiah, Messiah, you will sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. How else can you understand that passage? Because David, the king of Israel, is writing it. If it was someone else, one of David's servants, and he had this vision and he saw the Lord saying to my Lord, we might suspect that's David. But it can't be David because he's writing the passage. So who is David's Lord? And the only answer one can give is the Messiah of Israel, who is the king of all kings. And the weird thing is, David's Lord is at the same time David's son. So now that raises even a, a more difficult question. How does David's Lord become his son? 
Because Solomon is not David's Lord. Solomon is David's son. So how does David get a son who also then becomes his Lord? And that can only happen by the miraculous work and intervention of God in sending Messiah, as Isaiah says, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin birth was not just a way that God would wow us. It was to solve an exegetical question, (laughs) to solve an interpretive question. How do we understand this passage? The Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, would be a son of David, and yet be his Lord. Peter's message is not only fearless, it is biblical and flawless in its use of Scripture. When one is filled with the Spirit, we become fearless. And when we're filled with the Spirit, we verbalize the truth of God's Word. That's how you know people are filled with the Spirit. It's not the tongues. It's not the signs and wonders, though God may do all of those things. It's how bold are you in God and how verbal are you in expressing his truth. Another thing about Peter's message is it's extremely reasonable. He's telling them, Joel 2, it fits with Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. Psalm 68, he did rise from the dead. Psalm 110, it's the only explanation you can give to this passage. It's a reasonable presentation. The scripture says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. It's not enough to say, hey, I feel it in my bones, man, and it's true. We have to be able to give some reason why our bones are stirred or why they should be. I mean, yesterday when Margie and Jag were over the house and we're watching the Kings, my bones were stirred. Sorry, Jerry. Sorry. But that's not what this is about. It must be stirred internally, indeed, but because of the work and word of God that is impacting on who we are. That's what's happening in Acts 2. So let me just cut to the chase. And the final thing is, he gives a practical word. He tells them, this is what you are to do. In fact, what's so great about it, and every uh, preacher, everyone teaching God's word, wish this would happen, is for the crowd to say, what should we do? You know, it's almost like you get to pull teeth. This is what you need to do. This is how you do it. Say this prayer with me. Come forward, you know. But these guys are hearing it and they're saying, whoa, what do we do? Peter, what do we do with this stuff? Okay, I got it. You've convinced me. You've been reasonable. You've been fearless and you've been impressive and you've used the word of God. You've clearly delineated it to me and I understand it. What must I do? You know, ultimately... That is the ultimate bottom line, but no one can force that question on you. You have to ask it yourself. You have to ask yourself, what am I to do with this? Peter can help. He doesn't spend a lot of time here. He can help. Preachers can help. But ultimately, it's in your court what you do with what you see, hear, observe, and are challenged by and are encouraged in. So what does Peter say? He replied... 
Repent and be immersed. Every one of you in the name of Yeshua for the forgiveness of your sins. The Greek is very clear. It's not that you repent and are immersed and then you have forgiveness of sins. The Greek is very clear, which it says you are to repent so that you have forgiveness of sins and then you are to be immersed. Immersion is an indicator that you have experienced the forgiveness of God because you've believed. Belief and repentance are sort of like moments that happen at the same time. Repentance in the Greek word, metanoia, means to change your mind, to rethink things. That's why repentance is so critical for believers as well as unbelievers. We always have to be changing our mind about what we are, who we are, as God leads us further in his ways. And certainly those that do not know Messiah, they need to change their, their, their thoughts and their ideas and their ways regarding the Messiahship of Yeshua. The Hebrew word shuv means to return. It means we've wandered from him. And so repentance means we need to change our minds about wandering from him and turn and follow him. That's what shuv, that's what metanoia is meant to convey. And Peter says, that's what we need to do. And when we do that, we need to publicly make it known. And they are in the temple. Do you know archaeologists tell us there are over 200 mikvot that were in the temple? 200 uh, immersion pools in the temple? Archaeologists have uncovered 14 but they estimate there could, be a, could have been as many as 200 or more. Well, you figure during these holidays when people are coming into the temple, they have to go through the mikvah. They have to go through the immersion. And so Peter's saying, be immersed. And we could do it right here. We can do it all throughout the Temple Mount. Think about that fearlessness and the fearlessness of these people. And think about the change. These were people who said, crucify him, crucify him. Now they're saying, what must we do? And immerse us. It's amazing how God can transform a life by his truths and by his presence. And so he says, repent. And look what what he tells us. And you will receive the gift of the Spirit of God. For the promise is for you and your children and for all the Gentiles who are far off. For all who will call whom the Lord our God Will call. And this is the phrase, I'm going to close here, but this is the phrase that is most disappointing to me. Verse 40. And with many other words, he warned them. Luke, you couldn't tell us? <laughs> you couldn't write down the many other words that he used to warn us? You know? What did he warn them of? No doubt he warned them of an eternal destiny without Messiah, but he also was warning them of the impending doom that would strike Jerusalem when the Romans would invade. Yeshua already told them this. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains. Peter's already warning them. If you stay connected to the Jewish leadership that's insistent on rejecting Messiah, you'll get caught up in that judgment. The way out is by faith in Messiah. And that's true for us as well. The way out of our struggles is following Messiah. The way out of our consternation is to follow Messiah. The way out of an eternal destiny without Messiah, without God, is to follow Messiah. Warnings are good things. Because life has significant ramifications. Choices have significant consequences. And the greatest choice 
The greatest issue that lies before every one of us is what do we do with the God of the universe and with his son whom he has sent? Because the only way our life can be molded and crafted to be significant is a life that is filled with the spirit of God and as a consequence is devoted to doing his will. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.